the system of policing was not made for people of color, period. And we've been doing this for so long. And it's really time for us to start thinking about how can we do something new. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Prison guards across the U.S. are refusing to get vaccinated despite COVID outbreaks in hundreds of facilities. A Florida correctional officer polled his coworkers earlier this year in a private Facebook group asking, quote, will you take the COVID vaccine if offered? The majority were strongly against it. Only 40 of the 475 respondents said yes. Surveys have shown that more than half of the corrections officers in Massachusetts, California, Rhode Island, and Iowa, among other states, are refusing or delaying their vaccinations. Public health experts are concerned the pandemic will be harder to control both inside and outside of prison if this trend continues. Prison staff have continuously spurred outbreaks by not wearing masks, ignoring people's symptoms, and inconsistently enforcing social distancing and hygiene protocols. It shouldn't come as a surprise that guards are now refusing the vaccine. They are purposefully interacting with prisoners in COVID unsafe ways, contributing to hundreds of deaths in these facilities. In December and January, at least 37 prison systems began offering vaccines to their employees. More than 106,000 prison employees in 29 systems have received at least one dose. There are around 400,000 working prison guards in the U.S. Those rejecting the vaccine name fear of short and long-term side effects. Many cite vaccine conspiracy theories believing the vaccine will give them the virus or it contains a tracking device. Some point to their distrust of the prison administration and its handling of the pandemic. At a medium-security federal prison near Fresno, California, prison administrators closed off the main employee entrance and funneled the employees to a visiting room turned vaccination clinic. They weren't allowed to proceed into the building without getting vaccinated or signing a form that they refused the vaccine. This spurred even more distrust of prison officials and their motives among guards. Officers even reported that they'd rather be fired than vaccinated. Healthcare workers, nursing home staff, and police officers among prison guards have been refusing the vaccine at unexpectedly high rates. Vaccinating prison guards is a crucial piece of stopping the spread because staff move from the prisons to their homes and communities after work, creating a pathway for the virus and out of its facilities. 2,474 prisoners and 193 staff members have died thus far from COVID-19. 
In January, FCI Miami Warden Sylvester Jenkins sent an email to employees saying that, quote, in an act of solidarity, he had argued to get vaccinated and he had himself had gotten vaccinated and encouraged other staff to do the same. Only 25 employees signed up after the email was sent. Prison Guard Union President Karine Trotino said, quote, a lot of employees get scared when they find out, oh, we had an outbreak in a unit, 150 inmates have COVID. He said, quote, everybody calls in sick. This leads to a smaller staff, which, if there was an outbreak, could easily be weakened. At the height of the COVID outbreaks in prison, multiple states have had to call the National Guard to temporarily run the facilities because of all those calling out sick. Up next is a message we got on our coronavirus hotline. You can call that number at 765-343-6236. Hi, the Pulaski unit and Huntsville unit for COVID-19 inmates are not being treated fairly. They are not separating the COVID-19 patients. They are doing unnecessary lockdowns because the guards do not feel like being bothered with some of the inmates. They are not getting vaccines at all. Our show this week returns with the second part of a conversation between Kite Line's Nicole Siegel and three members of the Carbondale, Illinois community, Chastity, Kim, and Nick. They speak about the ongoing struggle for the use of the Irma C. Hayes Community Center. Originally opened by the city as a space for youth, the city later defunded the Irma C. Hayes Center and put the responsibility on community groups to steward the building. Now, Carbondale politicians are proposing converting it to a police substation. The sequence is familiar to Bloomington residents, where Community Environmental Hub was replaced with the police substation now looming over Switchyard Park. These Carbondale residents speak about why they oppose police being installed in the Irma C. Hayes Center and the alternative visions each of them has for their city. Each of them is thinking through what will be required for a Carbondale that doesn't need police and instead prioritizes people's needs over businesses, cops, and bureaucrats. Here they are. I want to ask you how you all envision a different future. And let me start with you, Nick. You're running for city council. How do you understand that as a step towards the future you envision? You know, what do you think you could do as a city council member? And also what will you continue to do as an organizer? The horizon of what we are struggling for requires votes on the city council in order to reduce the city's investment in policing and redirect those funds toward a whole variety of programs that I think are necessary for us really to build the conditions of not just survival, but of, of life and thriving in this town. So my trying to step into this realm of electoral politics is continuous with the organizing work that I've been doing for a long time. And Frankly, I'm very skeptical about whether or not anything will be able to be accomplished within that realm of the city council. But but I, I think I, I think it our project deserves a shot. It deserves us to try to do it through whatever channels that there are. So what we aspire to do 
is to reduce the Carbondale police budget by about half and to take the money saved through that process and invest in four different initiatives. I'll just focus on a few. One is what we call food autonomy. We want to be building a food social safety net in our town and to actually pay people to learn how to grow food and restore the soil and the and and build a healthy and ecological system in this town that's that's productive for people but also another aspect of it is uh, to develop rapid response mental health care uh, teams modeled on the group called cahoots in Eugene Oregon and we've always considered the Hermes C. Hayes Center a perfect place for that project to be based out of uh, and also for a clinic that would be attached to the to to those teams so to put it very succinctly there have been these sets of ideas about how to instead of policing and incarcerating people in, in response to problematic behavior or what looks like problematic behavior because of the organization of the world and the economy, there's always been another approach, the approach of building people up. We have in this town and in this country and, and really in this world over the last few decades made building people up more and more difficult. Absolutely. And those of us that want to engage in the work of care, compassion, and, and empowerment are basically always chasing this tiny grant after that tiny grant or relying on volunteer labor and everybody's stretched so thin and you have to have you know some other mode of income on the side. But this work that we're describing and pursuing is the most important work that can be done. And so what I'm campaigning on is essentially a transformation in, in the sense of what the responsibility of a municipal government is to its people mm. and saying that that actually these things which you all have written off as not necessary services, not basic enough to receive that steady funding that the police department receives, those things are actually as important as anything else that the city's going to going to focus on, as important as streetlights and sewers and public safety. But also, what does that even mean if you're depriving people of their basic needs, as Kim had pointed out? And so uh, that's what I'm, what I'm running for, is, is essentially to, to pose that deep political challenge to the heart of the city. And I think that if we actually allow for an honest discussion around just what are our, our responsibilities to one another, and what are the our basic needs, really, then we'll have a city that looks very different from the one we have now. Kim and Chastity, would you guys also respond to the question of how you envision a different future? I'll address that, a different future. I, I see the Irma Hayes as a place where, you know, children can find sanctuary, you know, problems with the school district can be identified. Mm -hmm. A parent that has a child with an IEP can go in there for better understanding of the process. You know, what are they saying in these meetings? Healthcare that is compassionate and dignified. Dental care has been an issue here for years. Maybe dental clinics, 
just, you know, re-entry programming, addressing the digital divide, you know, all of the problems have the potential to be addressed right there. Right there, like Nick was saying, food, food insecurity could be addressed. It's a perfect platform, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Shasta, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I'll say I, I definitely agree with everything that Nick and Kim said. My experience as a parent has just showed me the difference between a child who has support and a child who doesn't have support. Mm -hmm. there's a big difference and I think that Irma Hayes can be that place where we can offer support to everyone mm -hmm. everyone in that community and actually Carbondale as a whole like Kim was saying you can come to us for food like that's a basic need right mm -hmm. we can have resource centers for housing issues we can have resource centers for just everything you can imagine to help build the community and help it to thrive. And I think what that is going to take is for Carbondale as a whole to unify and understand that helping make Irma Hayes run is going to make us all better and getting behind the ideas that Nick is talking about. Um, I remember when the city sold the Irma Hayes Center to a group of individuals for a dollar or however much it was, right? That should not have happened in the first place. So it's happened. So now how are we gonna move forward on that? And in a city council forum the other day, another one of the sitting, sitting city council members actually agreed with Nick's plan and idea. Let's refund the money that you took from Irma Hayes in the first place and get that center back up and running. So if we can have a sitting city council member that's agreeing with these ideas, we can, as a city, get behind this idea and help make it happen. I would just like to say in, in closing, and I think this is going to be a, a pillar of what I'm doing from this point on. My daughter's father would say, he would always tell her every time, may the choice you make today be the decision that you can live with tomorrow. And I do believe that that is something that I would like to end in saying, it's our choices. The choice that we have today be something you can live with tomorrow. And I, th I think that's where Carbondale is at right yeah. now. When you're talking, Kim, I... I'm reminded of the way that kind of language is used to blame people for being convicted of, of crimes um, or for people, people and their families and their children yeah. bear the weight of that. They yeah. bear the weight of that. And what we don't do, we don't ask about the responsibility at the community level that we have, the responsibility that we have to care for each other. Oh, absolutely. We, we individualize responsibility in order to refuse to recognize the community and structural level of responsibility, which is the context within which individuals make decisions. And we, we just, we Absolutely. share responsibilities to each other with the ways to use that language. And I love the way you're using it here to insist on community responsibility to each other. Yeah, because when, when you look at, at him, him as an individual, you know, when we were together, he was a gambler. 
craps was his game. And they introduced the, and he's, he's from the East St. Louis community. They introduced those gambling boats. We were on the boat 24 hours one time. We went to the Alton Bell. He won about $3,400. Then we went to the Casino Queen. And we were on the boat for 24 hours. They had taken our bed. We had no food. I had no choice but to leave because you know, I'm pregnant. Mm. After I leave, two years later, he's on a natural life sentence. Mm. So, you know, when you look at these things, they're all related. Yeah. Addiction leads to death or incarceration. Lack of food leads to death or incarceration. Lack of employment can lead to death or incarceration. All of it. You've got those two things. And that's what I work every day to prevent. I don't want you to kill yourself, you know, and I don't want you to go to jail. I want you to, I want to love you. That's what I want to do because you are loved. And that's the one thing that, that people are not getting is that love, that community love. Right. You know, I haven't, I haven't got it. My daughter didn't get it, but we, I had parents. I had a brother. I have two nephews that loved us. I mean, I've just been thinking a lot about policing and I mean, I always assume that everyone knows the origins of police, but the origins of police are they were made as slave patrols. Slave to keep, Yeah, to keep the slave slaves. Mm -hmm. So I think in knowing that history, we have to know that the system of policing was not made for people of color, period. And we've been doing this for so long. And it's really time for us to start thinking about how can we do something new? And it's hard sometimes. I know it's hard to start thinking outside of the box and to think about, oh, how can we do this differently? But my goodness, <laughs> I've, you know, I've been fighting this fight for a little while now, got my kids raised. And I just think to myself, I do not want to leave them with this same America. I just Absolutely. don't want to leave them here. We have to do things differently. We have Absolutely. to. Absolutely. It's, it's so mandatory. Mm. Um, Nick, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, first I just want to say like I'm tearing up listening <laughs> to you guys speak. And thank you so much for me, Cole, because like, you know, we've all talked a lot but something about like making the space to talk, just like, I'm just really, really happy to hear. There's just a few points that I wanna to try to make very succinctly. The first is that the Irma C. Hayes Center was a successful example of a municipal service project that operated as the cultural center of the Northeast community in Carbondale for 36 years. And its funding was cut over the course of a year. And it was justified in 
the same way that Naomi Klein outlines in her book, The Shock Doctrine, there was a, a new city manager and a neoliberal mayor who convinced the council in the face of, of vocal public opposition that this wasn't, it wasn't even a choice. It wasn't even a political choice. It was merely a financial necessity. There was simply no way that the city could keep funding the programming out of the Irma Hayes Center and had to get rid of the building. They justified it because they said they had this massive budget deficit that they had to fill. But over the same period that they reduced funding and, and sold the Irma C. Hayes Center, they increased the police budget by more than they saved. And so it was not at all, none of those cuts, including the cut to the, the then community service officer, which at the time did not mean a police officer, it meant the city employee who was charged with uh, enforcing affirmative action policy, they cut that too. But none of those cuts did it made any dent in the deficit that they said they had because they raised the police budget even more. And so it, it is this very, very clear example of transferring priorities. And it has not made anybody any safer. In our town, as we've seen the funding and the relative size of the police increase over the last decade, we've also seen a massive increase in violent crime. Over the last five years, violent crime in our city has gone 105%. Over that same period, since the population has dropped and the police have remained about the same, we've had a relative increase of the police of about 30% in terms of the police per capita. That has corresponded with a massive increase in violent crime. And the reason is, as, as our city leaders have pointed out various times, is that the police can't prevent the kinds of conflicts that lead to shooting in our city and in, and in cities across this country, because these conflicts are often rooted in people that know each other. And they're often about people's mental health, people's ability to manage their own emotions and interpersonal conflicts. And they're about isolation, they're about nihilism, they're about money, they're about all these things that the police at their best can only come in afterward to investigate or something, right? They can't actually prevent the problems that are causing these conflicts. But they can. Many can prevent that. They can. What you do is if you get rid of racism, right? Mm -hmm then the competition for jobs, the competition for living goes away. Here you have a, this number of people, right? That are brown or black, okay? But there's only 35 jobs for a hundred people because either they have a record or, you know, this company doesn't hire brown people. This company doesn't do this. You know, when you grow your economy and people can then survive reasonably, there's no, re there's no need. The equation goes the other way, actually, you know, that, that what racism does is sustain racial capitalism. Absolutely. And so instead of, you can't get rid of racism without first redistributing the resources 
that would mean that there was no distinction in the awarding of jobs or of other privileges. So, you know, from, from my perspective, my theoretical perspective as an academic and my practical experience as an, as an organizer and an observer of the world, uh, you know, resource redistribution solves racism because racism is the justification, the naturalization of inequality. So remove the inequality and then you remove the ways that people construct ideas to justify that inequality. And so what you guys are doing, you are working to redistribute resources and that is the most effective way to combat racism that I think we have in the world. I definitely agree with that. And it's the situation that we've got here in this town, you know, it's it's a broader problem in this town, but but the Ermacy Hayes Center is is the kind of the concrete example of what's happening and, and it's and it's of, of deep kind of symbolic significance to the town. There's one other point that I guess I wanted to make and I'm, I'm sorry if it's going too long, but when, when we found out about the proposed police substation, we made a petition. And in the course of a week, over 2,000 people signed this petition. And it was completely dismissed by our sitting city council members. They found reasons just to, to undermine and dismiss it. They weren't going to listen. And Bob Wills, who is the new director of this, of the Irma C. Hayes Community Center, has also shown no interest in listening to members of the community that disagree with him. And he's, he's put forward the idea that he wants to run the community center like a business. And so again, it's this continuation of the same kind of thinking that actually defunded the community center, this idea that it, you know, everything should be run like a business and that the only value that matters is the value of money. So I think that we're gonna win this here in, in Carbondale. I think we're, go we're going to win the struggle for a community center vision of the Irma C. Hayes Community Center rather than the business and policing vision of it. And I think we're gonna win our wider struggle to transform this town into a town that's taking seriously the, the ecological and social and economic challenges of our time. But, um, but it's gonna be a struggle and I'm, I'm really happy to be working with Chastity and Kim on it. The only thing I'd like to add is the statistics that Chastity mentioned about the um, high school. If you look at the Illinois Department of Corrections docket, and we're in Jackson County, they closely mirror the, the men that are locked up. It's about 50% Black. And that's scary to me. That's scary. Oh, I feel so inspired talking to you guys and also just reminded of the basic abolitionist tenet that abolition is a simple and practical and stepwise program that we start by 
building the resources that people need to live without prisons and police. And you guys are just doing that work right now. And I, I, I wish you all the best in all of your activism. I love that we're connected to each other in our shared projects and in our region. Thank you so much for talking with KiteLine today. Thank you to everyone for their help on the show. You can find out more and listen to the previous episode about the Irma C. Hayes Center at our new website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.